You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love her. Brown skin, love her. Brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host Greg Ehill, the Culture Change Agent. Y'all know in this show we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generational leaders. Once again, thank you, Lot Kashaw, for that intro. Brown skin lover. I love it. I get hype every time I listen to it. And I know the feedback from the viewers and the, the, the viewers, the listeners, I know y'all get hyped to it too. So please make sure you shout them out on, on Twitter, on YouTube, SoundCloud, find them, buy stuff, man. Dope young artist out of DC, man. Shout out to Lot Kashaw. And today we got an episode for you. And today is going to be a slight shift. It's going to be a slight chip. This is going to be groundbreaking for us. I've never done it. Um, I really don't like doing it because it's never been done. And this is kind of unusual for me. But I definitely think through the climate and through the time we're in right now, it's really important to do. And what I'm about to do today, I'm about to re-release an episode that we recorded previously at the beginning of 2015. And the episode I'm going to record is episode number six. I'm re-releasing episode number six. And what that was was... An interview with Jonathan Butler, which was a young man that started the Mizzou hunger strike last year. And he went on the hunger strike, created national news and attention. And the question and what we pondered outside of his backstory and his history, outside of what was going on in Mizzou and the hunger strike. But the question we pondered was, what happens after the protest? And I know you're like, gee, okay. We, we had protests a couple months ago and all that. So why are we talking about it now? But... As we get closer to the end of 2016 and we reflect on how the year was going and what changes we need to make going into 2017, I don't want us to forget all that has transpired for the culture in 2016. The great strides that were made as us as a collective unit, but also some of the things that, 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 that didn't happen that we need to happen going forward. Not just personally, not just individually, because I know a lot of this podcast that we do interviews and more so focus on personal individual goal. But let's talk about and reinforce some society things that we worked on. And I looked at my stats. I'm like, yo, stats is killing. But I said that protest episode, man, that's one of my lowest listened to. I think it was early in the podcast, Dave. I said, no, we need to get more exposure because that was a phenomenal interview. And I want to make sure people hear a viewpoint from someone that is, it was in the struggle, that took a stand, but also can articulate some things, some strategies to do outside and after we protest because i mean that's big and i think as a culture and as a people if we can't take collective steps forward in 2017 and beyond 
um, is going to be a problem because I, I ain't gonna lie, as it is my job as a influencer, as an educator, specifically as an educator, a high school educator from a Title I school where primarily my demographic is black or brown, man. That's all I got to say, man. If we don't take steps together to look outside of ourselves to, to help those, specifically our younger African-American and Latino men and women, definitely these women because those are the majority. I, done, I broke up a fight this week. almost got kicked in the head. Actually, no, I did get kicked in the head while breaking up a fight from two female girls, and this is not the last instance. Last week, it was um, another instance. I almost got a computer thrown in my face. I mean... It's, it's stuff breaking out in class, and a lot of times our black men get the bad rap, bad rap, but sometimes it's our black women as well. And and if we can't, as a culture, move forward and really see structurally how we can change certain things, certain hoods that are still hoods, like everybody listening to this podcast, wherever hometown, wherever you're from, in the U.S. and maybe outside of the country as well, knows that there's certain hoods that 20 years ago they were still the same hood. Now they have different generations of people coming in and out. Those generations are bringing those kids in the school system that are still failing. It was like, okay, if the school system ain't going to change, what are we doing as a community to change? How are we, how are we addressing it? How are we getting that? Okay, the protest comes. Boom, that's cool. We're getting there. We're working there. working there. But how can we change these things? What are the solutions? So um, I know I've been rapping with a couple people that are, are, are in this system or are helping out and creating new things. And I, I can't wait to bring them on the podcast to share some revelation to share some things that they're starting to kind of organize us, collect us as a unit, specifically for on the media perspective. Because there's not a lot of mediums out there where you can go to as a urban millennial to see, um, to get your, your political views, um, to get certain takes on certain things outside of our mainstream Van Jones and our mainstream Roland Martin. So we have some, some creatives and some people that's in the game right now that are brainstorming and going to make some amazing stuff. So I'm going to make sure I release when that comes on the podcast, release all the info. But I think this is episode is critical. It was overlooked, and I want to do a re-release before we kind of move forward in what we're going to be discussing and who we're going to be bringing on going into 2017. But I'm telling y'all, these last two episodes after this one are going to be deep and reflective because I want to make sure before we enter 2017, I do my job as the host of this podcast to get us in the right space to reflect on this year, but to most importantly move forward in the 2017 with as much fire, with as much passion, with as much inspiration, and with as much mm, just good stuff that we can. And I'm going to do my part to, to help you out with that. A couple housekeeping things. You already know what I'm about to say. If you listen to via iTunes or via SoundCloud, whatever, if you listen to SoundCloud, follow us. iTunes, make sure you leave a rating. Specifically, a five-star rating, please. <laughs> and please make sure you share with a friend. As well, thank you so much for your support, for listening, tuning in. Thank you for those that have followed me and shouted me out via Twitter, via Facebook, via LinkedIn. I get a chance to read your messages. If I haven't responded, charge to the game don't charge it to my heart i will in due time but i appreciate all love and support that makes me feel good it makes me feel like we're moving forward and details are coming for the minority trailblazer conference in 2017 i will be looking for speakers i will be looking for partnerships even though i have my lineup pretty much set but there will be breakout sessions that may be available for for, for people that want to speak i will have prices location it will be in north carolina i'm telling you right now but I will have dates and um, early bird prices coming soon. 
and it's going to be a big, 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 big deal, big event, big event. So without further ado, let me just jump into this episode. Thank y'all for y'all support thus far. This is going to be a classic episode, and make sure you listen to this with an open heart, open mind, and let's make waves. This is a special edition of the Minority Trailblazer podcast, and the reason why it's so special is because... We're in a pivotal, let me turn down, let me tone it down a little bit. We're in a pivotal, because this is real, this is real serious and real sensitive. We're in a pivotal, 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 pivotal point in our time as African Americans within the United States. There's a lot of stuff going on across the board in education, in police brutality, in politics, in sports. I mean, there's a lot going on specifically in the civil rights space, um, there's been a lot of great activism out there. A lot of young, vibrant, energetic leaders taken to the forefront and leading a lot of these issues. And there's been a a groundswell of people around them that are supporting and, and, and really being knowledgeable about what's going on. And today, our guest is one of the the leaders of the movement. One of the leaders of the movement, and this young man, um, and I say young man like I'm 45, <laughs> but this man um, is the guy, is the is the man, the brother that started the hunger strike in Missouri, and today he's going to share his story, share with the progress that's being made, the progress that's yet to be made in Missouri and across the country, and I guarantee this interview will be a value add, so please lock in. Lock in, absorb it, share the content, and um, yeah, that's really all I got. Also, too, the format's going to be a little different. We're still going to have our, our past. We'll talk about um, our, our future guests. We're going to have our present, talk talk about um, the issues where it stands today and then the future. But also, today we're adding in a Q&A round, and I got to send a special thank you to Travis Jackson and the great folks at HBCU Pride Nation for facilitating this discussion because he posted something on Instagram the other day asking for questions for our future guests and over 30 some odd leaders and students um, answered the call and engaged and asked questions. So I parsed it down to around 10 questions. So thank you those for being engaged and asking real questions. Like I, I looked at my question, I looked at their question. I'm like, dang, bro, they need to be in the show. Like their questions are so legit. So Yes, thank you. Special shout out to um, HBCU Pride Nation for facilitating that dialogue. And um, that is the fourth section of the show. So if you ask a question, stick around to the end because that's when we'll be answering all the questions you have for the show. So without further ado, I'm excited. It is my pleasure, my honor to introduce my friend, my brother, Jonathan Butler, to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Hey, how's everybody doing? Um, you know, first off, you know, Greg, uh, you know, definitely want to appreciate you uh, for reaching out. I know we met at the conference. And so, you know, definitely get a chance to have face to face time with you and interact. Um, just definitely uh, knowing what you're trying to do with not only this podcast, but the work that you're doing outside of this. Um, so I definitely want to commend you um, on just the work that you're doing in terms of really trying to raise these voices um, and even just understanding how this is like a minority trail blazers thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we kind of talk about in school all the time is like we joke about it because, you know, there's different terms that you can use within yeah. academic literature and whatnot. <laughs> we always joke about it's just like. I'm not a minority. Ain't nothing minor about me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> but, but I appreciate the fact that you're you're, you're elevating um, and even being able to be in this space, uh, sharing my story to, to kind of highlight and elevate 
um, not necessarily me um, and trying to give myself shine, but definitely whatever I can do in terms of lending encouragement um, and, and inspiration. Um, that's what I'm going to try and do in this time. Um, so I think we're just going to go ahead and jump in in terms of, you know, uh, yeah, everything that's going on. Yeah, um, yeah, we're gonna jump into that, but I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the audience a little context and then give our our, our new listeners a a brief outline of the show. So I got you, I got you, I got you. So a little context behind how I met Jonathan. Um, I currently work at um, I work in academia, and we met at a Duke Civil Rights Law Conference, and this was for me a life changing conference because I never been in a space where we had law professors in from all across the country talking at a a case by case level for 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 on minority issues and civil rights issues. So I had a chance to hear him listen in on a panel and give his take on what's happened in Missouri, especially the hunger strike, which um, he is the originator of. And I was like, yo, I never heard this story because you look on the media, they give their their sound about. I thought the, the, the football players did it because I listened to ESPN and I was like, man, I really want to share this story. So um, we're going to dig deep into that. Before we do, I always start the show off with a quote um, from our guest and um, their favorite quote and how it applies and how they use it in their everyday life. So Jonathan, what's your favorite quote? And can you give me a story on how you use that in your everyday life? Absolutely. Um, for me, you know, I have a ton of quotes I can pull on, but one that's really um, been on my heart, you know, especially these past, you know, four to five months, just with everything we've been doing in terms of mm -hmm. activism, um, is, is by Shada Shakur. And it says, um, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support each other. We have mm -hmm. nothing to lose but our chains. And, and for me, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to find the words of how, I, you know, just to really explain how this resonates with me, because, you know, you know, well beyond just the example that, you know, As Asada, MLK, Malcolm, Stokely, you know, all, all the, the past leaders who have set before us in terms of like civil rights, in terms of activism. Um, I really think of, you know, how this plays into my life of this idea that, you know, it's our duty to fight for our freedom really originates from, you know, this resistance that I gained from my grandfather, you know, again, um, with his experience, you know, growing up from nothing, literally nothing um, in New York um, and, 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 you know, starting my family and, and raising, you know, and, and building me up in terms of what it meant to not only engage in the community, um, but to also just really, truly be selfless again. You know, he, he was a, he was a, he was a strong black preacher as well. And so just understanding that, you know, what it means to fight on so many different levels. You know, he fought for the New York community um, in the law realm. He fought for um, the people um, in his role as a pastor. He fought, you know, just people, you know, just, you know, giving people food to eat, you know. So he really set forth this true example of what it means to fight for our freedom, what it means to win, what it means to love and support each other, and what it truly means to, to have nothing to lose but our chains. Because at the end of all this, um, you know, when you talk about life, um, it's not going to be about, you know, who we met, and, you know, how many followers that we have. It's going to be about the legacy we left behind of how many lives did you touch um, and did you do everything you could in, in your lifetime to really make a change. So that's that's mm. that, that's one of the quotes that really sticks with me um, and has been sticking with me for a while now. Powerful. I can tell from your response, this is going to be the show, an amazing show. So before we can kind of paint the picture on the current issues right now, I do, and I know you don't want to talk about yourself a lot. I mean, a lot of people in the, in the movement, a lot of people themselves, they're, they're really humble, but I really want people to understand where you come from, because when I heard like where you were born, I was like, 
what he that doesn't make sense so if you could give our audience um a little personal background of kind of where you from and and who you are outside of kind of the space you're in right now absolutely um well i i I tell people all the time i'm born from the best place that you've probably never been to um i was born in the midwest omaha nebraska nebraska you know also also the the place you know former to you know Greats such as you know Malcolm X, Gabrielle Union, you know you know there's good... Malcolm X was born in Nebraska. Man? Yes, sir. I thought he was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> ah, nah, so you gotta know your history where he he, yeah. he grew up. And so like there, there've been some great people that come out of Omaha. And for me, um, you know, just with the transition that my family went through, because again, my family did you know again with my grandfather and that side of the family grew up on the East Coast. Um, they just migrated to the Midwest, and so I've known this lifestyle of living in the Midwest um all my life and so um for me you know it's just always been this experience um and this kind of battle back and forth of just like what it means to be black uh, mm-hmm. so when i think about everything i've experienced um you know from like doing the ymca at a young age you know getting mm-hmm. involved you know with sports um you know uh, shout out to my my high school omaha central high you know i was on the the state football uh, championship team, you know. Okay, okay. You know, I was also involved in track and field, you know. So for me, um, when I look at who I am, um, there's this embodiment of one community engagement. Um, just because you know, um, having uh, being raised in a Christian household, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was exposed to a lot of things, right? Obviously, the ministry side of it, um, and, and you know, the prayer and all of that, but also the side of like really, you know, going out and giving out food to the hungry. Um, you know, I did, you know, at a very young age, I was 10 years old going to, you know, the prisons with my, my parents, um, and, you know, praying for, for the, the inmates in, in the prison. So, you know, I have that, that, that side of, you know, really understanding again, pointing back to loving and supporting each other, um, did this background of really engaging with the community as well as, um, me, I'm just, you know, I'm a fun loving guy, you know, I'm a little bit of everywhere, you know, I enjoy, you know, um, you know, I went to Christian camp one year and, and found out how to do archery. So, you know, I enjoy archery, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, I, you know I'll drive it to the lane, you know what I'm saying? You know, we, we can hoop outside, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, there's a lot of, you know, aspects to me, but it, mm-hmm. for me, it's just like being, you know, just, I, I, I really view myself as just as ordinary person. Um, and I just try and do or, extraordinary things through love each and every day. And I think that's shown in the way that I was raised, um, in the way that, you know, I hope is is shown every day in the way that my actions speak for themselves. I got you, man. Perfect answer. Perfect answer. And I know um, a friend of mine, I know I ain't in, in the Q&A round yet, but a friend of mine, they they definitely want to ask you, um, Thomas Hearn, ask you, what led you in your youth, in your youth to kind of where you are now into this activist? And, and I use the term activist. Cause I know some people might like activists, like, oh, you're an activist. If you're it, it, there's a lot of stuff behind that term, but what led you in your youth? Like, how did you, yeah, what led you to this activist type of realm and understanding? Because I know you mentioned your family, your upbringing, but I mean, the stuff, and we're going to get to it that you have done thus far, it didn't just happen overnight. So what kind of led you down that road and that path? I think for me, it you know, there's levels, obviously, you know, I've spoken mm-hmm. on the family, which I think is a huge portion of it. But I also think understanding how the Midwest functions, um, if, you, if you've lived in the Midwest, you, you know how it is. Um, and so uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but also understanding the fact that, you know, 
I I grew up in a city um, in in Omaha where we have you know about four hundred thousand plus people, right? People think mm-hmm. people think it's like only like two hundred people. No, it, it's a real city. It's four hundred thousand. <laughs> um, but growing up where you know we're only about five percent, um, the black population is about five percent. But even within mm-hmm. that, um, when when the sun goes down and the street lights come on, you know what side of the city to be on, um, so that you're not in trouble. And so for me this early awareness at a very young age of being profiled by the police, by, by having interactions in school, you know, being, you know, called out my name with racial slurs. Um, I think were the, the early stages of, you know, when you combine that with what the lessons I was getting from my family, I started to really understand that, you know, the, the, the singular identity of just being black, you know, not even being like a black male or putting anything else on it, just being black um, truly was, was something that stood out um, in America. And so for me, um, when I started to get involved with um, the Urban League um, back mm-hmm. in back in Omaha, Nebraska, when I was starting involved, um, not just per, you know participating in the YMCA, but also like doing being a mentor, um, those are the things that like initially got me into um, what we would nowadays consider activism. And then you know being you know blessed and afforded the opportunity to, to come to college, you know I got involved in organizations like Mizzou's Black Men's Initiative, um, the Legion of Black Collegians. I was a senator for that. And so my activism just took many forms through, over the years. And then as of recently, in the past several years, again, you know, specifically post-Ferguson, um, it manifested itself into more of the grassroots organizing activism. So, again, like I've had this long span of activism, you know, literally, you know, doing prison ministry at a very young age to, you know, being in student organizations till now, like doing grassroots organizations. Um, but it's always been about community engagement. I think that's really where um, this my, my inspiration spurs from. So it's been basically a decade, decade and a half of just community engagement, that being the core focus, and that kind of led you down the route. So that's huge. So we're going to jump right in to presently um, the issue and where it kind of all started in, in Missouri and the hunger strike. So before you even get into the hunger strike, what made you, what action, if you, is there, I know it was a, a boil up of different things, but if you can kind of point to and tell us the one story, if you have one, that kind of led to you say, Okay, enough is enough. I need to do something drastic to let our voice be heard. You know, it's 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 honestly a lot harder than you may think to like pinpoint it. And I, I know that's mm-hmm. a question I get asked all the time. And so, you know, a lot of people, you know, without asking me, were like, Oh, it was, you know, the incident with, you know, the feces in the residence hall, or oh, it was this situation, or oh, it was that situation. And for me, even though the hunger strike didn't manifest until, um, you know, this past month. And as you know, again, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the past 90 to 100 days on this campus. Mm-hmm. For me, I would almost pinpoint it back to um, the situation um, several years ago with um, Sashi Minya Corey, um, in which she was a student athlete. She was a swimmer here at the university um, mm-hmm. and she was sexually assaulted um, by fellow athletes on campus. Um, mm-hmm. And for um, after, after the incident happened, she came forth. Um, she talked to the athletic department. She talked to administrators. And for over a year, no one did anything um, at all. And so, you know, prior again, giving context prior to this, we had, you know, cotton balls thrown on the, the front lawn of our black culture center. We had inward spray mm-hmm. painted everywhere. You know, I got, you know, when Obama got elected on campus, I got in a, an, a physical altercation with three young gentlemen who decided to jump me because I was the source of all the world's problems. You know, so, so I, I, you know, you've seen these incidences. You know, I've seen these incidents occur. But for, for me, that was like almost a, a 
you know, a paralyzing event to go through. Um, not only, you know, again, I wasn't super close with Sasha, but knowing that, you know, we had similar circles, I'd interacted mm-hmm. with her before and knowing her character, knowing that, you know, because of how reactionary the university was, um, you know, again, like you would think that, you know, if I file a report, you know, if I, you know, I put in, you know, submit my, you know, you know, incident, you know, to the police or whatever, that it will be listened to. But I think yeah. honestly, when, when I reflect on it, it was that point where I really started to, you know, put this question in my mind of like, what do we have to do? And we talking about black people, you know, talking about black students on campuses, like looking at our experience, no one wants to believe us. No one wants to listen to us when we're at diversity forums. No one wants to listen to us when we're you know, having one-on-one conversations with, you know, faculty, staff, and administrators. No one wants to listen to us when we're sending emails. And in a similar situation, no one to listen to this young lady. Um, and unfortunately, you know, after over a year of trying to fight that battle, um, she ended up taking her own life just because of the the trauma. Oh my goodness! The, the traumatizing incident of you know being sexually assaulted, not having administrators you know believe her, and then now we have all of these reactionary policies in terms of Title IX and, and other things that are happening on campus. And so honestly, like if you want to pinpoint something, I think. That really paralyzed me um, on an emotional level because, like, like at that point, like, wh- what else do you expect us to do, right? Everyone, you know, wants black students to be respectable and, you know, quote unquote civilized and, you know, go through the proper channels. But here you have a prime example of someone who went through the quote unquote proper channels, um, you know, went through an extremely traumatic incident. Um, and then you still don't have them, you know, being valued as their own human lives. So, um, I think honestly, that's where a lot of this stuff originates is just understanding that, you know, we've been fighting this battle and obviously racism didn't start, start at Mizzou, right? You know, we know mm-hmm. these things, but you know, how it manifests on campus is something that, you know, admins, faculty, students and staff can control. Um, and it just wasn't happening. And so like, I, that, you know, that pressure of feeling back to a corner really, I think started, um, at that point. That's, that's, I, I won't even speak on that, man. That That's self-explanatory. So why did you choose a hunger strike or was it like a group thing, kind of like the in the, the, the Rosa Parks situation where people were behind you and said, this is this is it? Or when I say situation, please don't please, please oh, listeners don't think I'm taking that taking it lightly, please. But how why a hunger strike? For me, the biggest thing was that. Similar to the Sasha Minu Corey situation, um, you know, we had, we had been working, we had done some post works and, you know, work with an organization called MU for Mike Brown, which was led by three black women. Um, when we did some really great work, you know, in terms of like vigils, community building. Amazing work. Like, is it, was a Shirella part of that too? Um, Who was the three black women? Have you just kind of. The three black women were uh, Na- Naomi Dahadri, um, Ashley mm-hmm. Bland, and then Kay Beck. Uh, okay. And so they, 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 you know, again, a lot of us, a bunch of us, I would say like 15 to 20 of us, because again, mm-hmm. we're only about two hours away from Ferguson. When everything happened with Mike Brown, you know, I went down, the, the Mike Brown was murdered August 9th. I was there August 12th. Uh, a lot That's of people crazy. were there within, you know, several days and organizing and doing a lot of that stuff. And so that's what they brought back from the movement. But again, uh, I would say I personally, you know, as we, you know, went through last year in 2014, that we, you know, we went, you know, had a, a series of diversity forums in which, uh, you know, one of our vice chancellors at a university called, you know, you know, B word fits. Um, <laughs> Whoa. You know, it, it, a vice chancellor. A vice chancellor. Again, you're talking about the third rank down from chancellor um, calling, you know, 
black students, you know, talking about our pain, B word fits, you know? And so it, it, for me, it's like, I started to feel this pressure again of feeling back into a corner. And then you have, you, you know, what we had this year in 2015 of just like, we're trying to reignite, you know, those conversations. We're trying to get people to, you know, you know, follow through on the promises that they gave us in post-Ferguson. Post-Ferguson and Mizzou, they gave us a lot of promises about change and fall through on none of them. And so, mm-hmm. Um, we just got to this climax where, you know, we've talked to our vice chancellors. They're not listening to us or respecting us. We've talked to faculty. They're not listening or respect to us. Talk to our provost chancellor. And so when you look at the evolution of the Concerned Student 1950 group, the group as a whole um, mm-hmm. started a series of protests and things on campus to to really try those and ignite those situations. But for me personally, the hunger strike was just something I felt that I needed to do because, again, getting back to this point of paralyzation of saying, like, you know, my humanity, my basic humanity is not being respected or acknowledged. Um, I felt like the hunger strike was something that was necessary because I, I wanted to show people through my action that this is serious because clearly they thought it was a game. And, and, and clearly there's still people even to this day after the hunger strike who still think it's a game. Um, and for me, I had to, you know, being willing to lose my life was a very serious thing, but I needed people to understand how serious this is. You know, we're literally playing with people's lives. And when you have incidences happening on campuses every day where you have, you know, UCC, where you have mass shootings, where you have other incidences where people, you know, students are getting beat up, um, like at the the College of William and Mary, um, or William and Clark, it's, uh, I may be remembering the college wrong, but you have these incidences and they're getting more and more violent because the college campus cultures are being allowed to operate that way because you don't have mm-hmm. strong leadership. They're being allowed to operate that way. And I think that's the key thing. So it's me. It's like, it's serious. And no one else wanted to have that same urgency for change. They just wanted to talk and put out press releases. And <laughs> for me, I, I got to, again, like I said, with the previous situation, I got to a point where I, I felt paralyzed. I fell back into a corner. I'm just like, I can't. I can't get to this place again because even if I never get to see this change, you know, I probably won't ever get to see the the full extent of, you know, what we're able to do with Concerned Student 1950 and the hunger strike. But for me, I, I need to show them that this was serious and I was willing to to sacrifice my life, which I was um, to show people that, you know, this is this is not a game. My life, um, the life of other black students, the life of, you know, Muslim students, the life of brown students, you know, the, it's not a game. Mm, so. And if and and about the the strike, what what would you say? How was the support like? Because I know when we talked, um, when I heard you and listened to you in your first panel at the Duke Civil Rights Law Conference, and I listened to the story of how people, of course, there's two sides, and we, I, if you could briefly talk about both sides, the people that really supported you and were around you and kept you going through that time, because I know the strike was physically very challenging mentally it had to be challenged as well and then please do talk about some of the negative aspects of it because i don't want to have this whole conversation and not highlight the fact that there is a lot of opposition to what you're doing everybody's not 100 percent behind that so if you could talk specifically about the hunger strike the support that manifested from the community and i know you spoke about the, fa- the faculty and professors as well but also the negative side that has came with it as well being the responsibility of what you've been doing mm-hmm yeah um for for me the 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 positive side the positive support definitely came from obviously you know i've said it time time again the community as a whole so you know you i I had people literally i i was not expecting the response that i got um both positive and negative i really wasn't expecting it um i really just wanted to to have this impact 
um, mainly with administration, um, hopefully mm-hmm. change what happened with the administration, but not knowing that, you know, with my actions and, you know, I released the letter that, you know, I had people coming out of the woodworks, um, you know, coming to the support people on campus that I haven't talked to in like a year or two years. <laughs> people from, you know, like back home who I, I haven't talked to in a while, you know, people across the nation who have never met me a day in their life. And so there's this really communal effect that happened not only on campus, but across the nation. And so, you know, having teachers and graduate students willing to do walkouts in the name of, you know, trying to get r- racial, you know, equity on campus, um, and, you know, racial justice on campus. When you when you have students who are, you know, occupying the space on campus with the campsite. You know, I yeah, I didn't tell anybody to do that, but they were just like, you know, we're going to camp out on the quad until JB's, you know, hunger strike is over. And, you know, so for me, the support was just so beautiful because, again, this central idea that I hold that, you know, there's still beauty in humanity. You know, there's still, you know, we can still fight and still fight for a better tomorrow because there are good people out there. I think that what was shown um, in the time during the hunger strike specifically, because whether people were checking in on me via text. Um, you know, people, you know, literally helping me walk to and from, you know, class, whatever the case was, you know, there's an outpouring of support that was um, really amazing to see. But, you know, even with the good, you know, yet yet mm-hmm. that as well. Um, and it was really unfortunate. Um, there, there, there's, there's a lot of levels I could address, but I think there's three main levels to address specifically. Um, in the okay. conversation of when you talk about negativity is one. Um, unfortunately, the negativity within the own, our own black community, um, a lot of black people, um, you know, when you talk about black alumni, when you talk about black students, really just didn't understand it. Right. Um, rather than actually doing their own research about what's happening in their own community, um, they chose to believe, you know, you know, hot topic, you know, inappropriately written headlines and then just make assumptions based off that. So I, I can't tell you how many screenshots I have of, you know, Facebook messages that people said that were pretty nasty and other things people were. And this is from our own people. This is from us, right? Yeah, this, unfortunately, it's, it's, from, it's from fellow black people. They're, they're, they're people just being nasty and sending emails about me across school emails, you know, just saying some really, you know, just it's, it's really unfortunate just the things that people are saying because um, – Honestly, you know, these, again, are people who have never had a conversation with me, who who don't know me, and, again, are just making assumptions of, you know, why I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing, you know, JB's doing this for attention, or he's doing this for X, Y, Z, not understanding that, you know, activism work is, you know, what I've been doing the majority of my life um, in different realms, and that the fact that if you truly understood my heart, you know, for justice, you understand why I'm doing this, but, you know, people never took the time for that, and so that was one level that was honestly pretty disheartening, you know, you can deal with trolls on Twitter, you can deal with, you know, random, you know, because those are people I don't have a connection with, but, you know, I really do have a heart for the black community, and so, you know, it's just, you know, it was disheartening in the moment. Um, you know, since then we've been able to have conversations with some of those people, not all, but some of those people and, and kind of get perspective on it. But just even seeing how self hate and internalized oppression affected our own community during that time was pretty hard to, to take. Um, you know, of course I, I brief, pre, briefly mentioned it, but you have the trolls. I think mm-hmm. that's another demographic. You have people who literally, um, just because, you know, Donald Says. Just because Rush Limbaugh said, said something that there they just they found us on social media and started harassing us. And so obviously there's just the ignorance, you know, which honestly doesn't affect me at all, because, 
you know, I have no connection to you, one, right? And then two, it's just the fact that you, you're just saying some off-the-wall things that make no type of sense. Um, it's just like, you know, at one point in time, people were saying that I, uh, I was doing this to start a campaign to kill all um, police officers. What? And, and I was just li- living in, you know, again, this is stuff I just, you know, it was so wild. I had to screenshot it because I have to, you know, I, I'm, I, I need it for, for evidence for later. But literally, you had to address it, yeah. how, do, how do we go from a conversation about me doing a hunger strike to, you know, get racial justice on campus to like killing police officers, you know? And so, <laughs> and so people were literally, even in that time, were just having their own agendas. Um, and I think there's also, you know, understanding that I think a third uh, pretty significant source of negativity um, did come from actually faculty, right? Um, because for faculty, there's this big – I almost frame it that there's this big, like, dialogue on how change needs to happen. Oh, yeah. Please speak on that, because that's that's only the faculty. That's can kind of maybe our our older demographic of America. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to let you see, because you I know you're going to hit on yeah, it. <laughs> I mean, and, and yeah, you're, you're already kind of hitting on where I'm going with this is that, you know, obviously there's a whole intergenerational component. Um, and so, like, kind of flipping the script real quick, we got a lot of intergenerational support from people who have previously done activism on campus. So during the 80s, during apartheid. There was occupation of on campus on our quad as well, and they're you know they're camping out and fighting against the university to trying to get um, divestment to happen. So from mm-hmm. people like that, we got a lot of support, you know. But then you have this other side of intergenerational who are just like calling us savages, which I'm just like you you're a tenured faculty um, calling your own students savages and saying that you know we're not civilized and we're calling us unintelligent, you know stuff that I would expect to see from a random troll on the internet. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't expect to see from a professor who's teaching me, you know, in, in the economics department or teaching me in the, the business department. And so it's this whole component that, you know, there's this I'm not going to call it flawed logic, but there's this I'll call it flawed logic. There's this flawed <laughs> call it like you see it. You know, call it like you see it. There's this flawed logic that there's literally only one way to do activism, not understanding that, you know, when you talk about activism and social change, protest is always going to be important. Policy is always going to be important, and literally everything in between is going to be important for change. Not one tactic alone is going to win this fight, um, and it was really disappointing, honestly, to see, you know, and again, these just weren't like faculty and staff that were black. These are faculty and staff of all colors, right? Um, th- these are the same people who, um, on day four of the hunger strike, were trying to get me committed to a psychiatric ward so they could force feed me. Um, which, you know, wow. that, that's a whole story I'm going to come out in my autobiography about. And that's yeah, the, yeah, you shouldn't even let that slip on a jump. But I'm, I, no, but I mean, I've already, I've already talked about people because even <laughs> within that, there's levels um, to, to, you know, those type of actions. People were literally, you know, because they just didn't want to understand students in our pain and how we were, you know, trying to express ourselves and what we were going through through protests. There's such a lack of, you know, again, I would expect an educated person with multiple degrees to, you know, want to do their proper research, but, you know, not even having those type of people want to do their research and really connect um, and bridge the gap um, was, was uh, kind of a source of negativity as well. So, you know, again, those are just three sources. There's definitely a lot, but I think the, those are pretty significant when you talk about this dialogue, right? Uh, yeah. Like what does activism look in a tangible manner? Um, especially this intergenerational component of just like y'all did it one way, we're doing it another way. 
it doesn't mean either way is right or wrong, but we're saying we just have met- different methods of going about um, this change that we're we're all looking for. That's pivotal, man. That's pivotal. And honestly, there's so much stuff that we can kind of dig into on the, the present state, but I think you've tied a knot in that. And before we go into the future state of what's going on for you personally in the movement, I do want to address one key thing that I it took I had it made me take a seat when we had our when I first listened to you and um President Head on the panel at Duke Civil Rights um Civil Rights Law Conference is you spoke on the fact of imp- the importance of truly knowing the history um, before before you lead in a in a in an aspect because you broke down. I want you to break it down for our audience. You broke down the history of um, racism in Missouri to a level that I was like, wow, because a lot of times in, in, in the past, I've been one of the I consider myself influencer of some sort. And I used to speak on a lot of issues. Right. But I I didn't realize, and I just as I getting older, how much I did not know, and that I had to shut up and sit down and let people that do know speak on it and, and find out how I can help in my way because, like speaking on this issue, and we have a lot of leaders out there speaking on topics that they shouldn't be doing. A lot of a lot of third party bloggers and hot take, like you said, are speaking about issues that they haven't done the proper research on to frame it and to advocate in the right way. So you can speak about briefly the 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 core issues that already been happening in Missouri way before you even got to the hunger strike because that was pivotal when you said that it it was like yo it dawned on me a lot of different things and um I really just want you to speak on that briefly yeah and and just touch on this briefly uh, I'll centralize it around the core issue for me is that I just have this inherent curiosity that my mother really nurtured in me to really question everything around me. I think all, far too often, you know, that try, we, you know, again, that's a whole different discussion on child development, but how we like silence the curiosity and innovation of our youth. Um, that, mm-hmm. Again, that's a whole different thing. But I'm, you know, I was blessed that my mother really nurtured that for me. And so I've always questioned things. So for me, I try and I, you know, idealize like, why would a rational, right? If I'm if I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say, why would this rational human being call me the N-word and write it on my my residence hall door? You know, and really trying to understand like what brought someone to that point to inherently have that type of hate in their heart to do those type of actions, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, it it was just that natural leading up to like doing my research. So when you look at Missouri, Missouri, it's uh, as as well as several other states has a really extreme case of mistaken identity. Um, Missouri wanted to be the South so bad, um, but the South, you know, historically, again, this is just like paraphrasing the history, but the South really didn't want Missouri. So even though Missouri was historically a slave state um, and never embodied its true identity as a quote unquote um, Southern state because it never truly aligned with Southern ideals, again, in terms of how slavery works. But even understanding that Missouri being a former slave state, understanding um, the slave labor that built literally the columns that we, you know, on our campus that we idealized, Jesse Hall, which we idealized, you know, all these things on campus were literally built on the backs of black and brown labor and talking and slave labor at that. So when you look at that history and then you add in the component of understanding how racism has been interplaying, you know, literally on a global scale of how this all works together, even looking at, you know, how the university invests its funds and we buy, you know, stuff from private prisons. So for me, it's, you know, 
all these aspects of understanding the components of where we come from um, were just kind of innate to me because I, I just question is like, why would, you know, to, to understand why three white guys wanted to beat me up the night Obama got elected just because I was black. We have to talk about the history of where these guys come from, from these rural towns in, in Missouri, talk about what how they were socialized. Right. Right. And then talk about the socialization that they're getting on campus. Mm. Damn, man, you, you definitely tied a knot on that, man. And I appreciate you addressing the importance of really before you advocate, especially on things as critical um, as civil rights and whatnot, to, to have that curiosity, have that curiosity, ask those questions to yourself before you ask it of other people. Um, just like I said about Malcolm X, like I, I really I read I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I know he's from Omaha, Nebraska. So that's crazy. That's crazy. So we're going to go talk about the future round. And um, specifically before we get to our Q&A, because I had a lot of a lot of people and I'm going to give the shout out where it's due to to who facilitated that that Q&A that uh, people reference to you. But um, a lot of people want to know. And this is our future round. We're talking about future. What's next for you personally? Oh, in a very uh, small scale, um, you know, uh, you know, in the immediate future, I'm trying to, you know, transition to the next phase. So for me, I actually um, about two days ago just finished the first round of applications to PhD programs. Um, I'm really interested in like exploring transnational racism, exploring access, you know, to, to college. I'm really interested in how can I further what I'm doing in terms of activism and then add a scholarly component onto it. Because, you know, in the field right now on uh, higher education, you really don't see um, People, um, let alone people of color, um, really researching these things and connecting the activism piece. Right. So we see re research on race and racism, but we really don't see the connection of how can you put it to action. Right. So the hunger strike was putting that theory that we studied to action, you know, concerns to one I five oh was putting theory to action. And so um, I'm looking at Ph.D. programs, applied to a couple already um, you know, looking to apply to some more. And, you know, at the end of the semester, um, but then, you know, literally, I just want to continue my work. Um, for me, I really want to continue in a more focused realm of community engagement. But that's those are the next steps for me is like getting a Ph.D. Um, and continue some of the projects that I've been working on for a while that kind of got sidetracked the past couple of months. <laughs> you know, and, re and really, you know, start starting on those initiatives to continue my work within the community, because I, I think that's where it starts. And if nothing else, if you don't understand anything else from activism that's happened, is that there is so much power in the singular voice. So just imagine what happens when we get everyone, everyone's voice in the community to stand together. Got you, got you, got you. And um, that's powerful. And the next the next question I have is. What's next for the movement? And before I answer that, I know a lot of people that's listening are going to be like, "Okay, Greg, where are the hardball question? Where are the hardball?" <laughs> I mean, I got, I got your hardball. I left it to y'all, the audience, that had the the pointed question. So please don't be like, "Oh, you're just throwing these flies." Like, relax, relax, people. So, um, but what is next for the movement? And when I say the movement, I'm, I'm talking about the move specifically, kind of the stuff that y'all, because I know y'all been working before, before the hunger strike, and working on a lot of issues. But what next do you think is for the movement? For me, I think the the next phase is going to be an increased awareness on on black consciousness. Um, something that came about during you know the process on campus is that you know we held town halls and you know we really got a chance to engage with a community that you know historically doesn't come together, right? Unless we're talking about a probate or a party, you know, you know, <laughs> you know and just being just being real real honest, you know. Um, so we saw an increase in 
increasing in that community being built. And I think that's where a lot of the passion of what we're going to try and do on campus is that, you know, there's a lot of literature that I know that other, you know, student leaders know that we really want to start to pass on to that next generation because that's how we make this sustainable, right? Is that, you know, I graduate in May, so I can I can only do so much before my time is up at the university. Um, but what's more important is instilling these morals, the, the sense of urgency, the sense of, you know, servant leadership, the sense of, you know, activism within the next generation. So I think, honestly, just as a whole, without getting into specific initiatives, that's what we're really going to focus on is like raising black consciousness and really um, pouring into the black community here. Okay, man. Great, great. So um, we're going to go to the Q&A and then we're going to go to our the last the last round, which is the rapid uh, rapid fire answer round. And with the Q&A, these questions, hopefully you can spend around 30 seconds to a minute address it or if it can if it, if it can be addressed quicker. It can. If not, if it's something that you really feel strong about, of course, I ain't putting no limit on it. But, um, I know I, I know time is of the essence. Um, and before I go into the audience engagement, I will say I have to shout out Travis Jackson and the people at HBCU Pride Nation for facilitating this discussion and helping out with these people that um these students and these people that are really in tune to 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 the african-american community asking these questions so shout out to the hbcu pride nation for um bringing in these questions so we had around 30 questions and i i parsed it down to a good 10 and um i guess we'll get started april hatcher her social media at april lamby do y'all regret going to a pwi over hbcu and do you feel like going to a PWI has been worth it? Um, no, um, none of us. I can confidently tell you, again, I don't speak on behalf of other people. And, and so in this, <laughs> like in this instance, I can't. It's like the resounding answer is no. Um, there's resistance that we've been able to build up by facing um, the environment at PWI. Uh, PWIs, and I think it's made all of us stronger again, not only in our sense of activism, but in our sense of community engagement. Does that make us better? Um, you know, those of us... Um, you know, black students who go to PWIs doesn't make us better than those who go to HBCUs. Absolutely not. We're just getting a differing experience. And I think when you talk about, you know, um, you know what that looks like, I think we're just gaining a different set of skills. It's not a better set of skills, but we're gaining a different set of skills when engaging with issues like white supremacy, you know, patriarchy, racism, etc. Got you, man. Got you. Got you. Um, Shatara two one two as. What's your feelings on nonviolent protests in this increasingly violent world? Is it still a tool for change or extension of martyrdom? There's always going to be aspect of martyrdom to nonviolence because, again, uh, martyrdom, again, just looking at the definition of the word, it doesn't always end in death technically. Um, so it just depends on, like, what type of martyrdom. So there's social martyrdom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's always going to be those aspects. And so I think it's always going to be necessary to a certain extent. Um, but I'll also say that, you know, I believe in my amendment rights as well. Um, so I do believe there's 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 forms. Uh, of protests that are necessary at different times. So I'll, I'll say that. Gotcha. Great, great answer. Um, Beauty Peaceful underscore asked, by taking a stand for change, how will this impact future generations and students of your university? Honestly, um, my hope would be that I would truly make a heart change with people and not just, you know, with me, but, you know, with all the students of all backgrounds, you know, with the activism, the Jewish students, Muslim students, black students, Latino students, everybody has been contributing to. My hope is that it has a real heart change on a, on a really deep level. But honestly, um, what I've seen already in terms of dialogue, in terms of 
um, white peers coming out and, and truly being allies. I think there, there's already a culture shift towards um, really trying to be more social justice minded. And I think that's um, where we're going to continue to need to focus on and fight for um, as we press towards liberation and freedom. Gotcha. Great answer. I got like five more questions. Um, Miss Chris, Chris five as for those people no longer on college campuses, what would be the best way to continue work towards change? Also, on campus or not, what are the most effective roles of white allies? Great question. Oh, the second question is a great question. and It could be on its own question. But I'll answer the first half is that uh, the immediate answer is that you can always support students on your campus. Like, especially if you used to be on a campus, you know how it is and you know what you experience. So why wouldn't you want to support emotionally, socially, financially, et cetera, support the students who are trying to fight for change? Because I can't name how many times where we were struck for money trying to just get white poster boards from, you know, the, the, you know, the doctor. <laughs> you know, so support them as well as like the biggest part is going to be engaging in your own community, whether you are custodial services or whether you're a teacher or whether you are a psychiatrist, like you can always engage in your own community and give food to the poor, you know, engage in your local faith community, whatever it is to continue activism, because there's different levels of activism. And then in terms of allyship, that's a whole different conversation I can't go into in 30 seconds. But the big thing is that allyship is a verb. Um, it's action. Um, it's not a gold star that you get on your resume. It's not a self-proclaimed title that you get to run around saying that you're an ally. What it is is that you're, you're truly enacting MLK's idea of um, dangerous altruism and really putting your life on the line to um, fight for change and fight for justice on behalf of those who are disadvantaged like people of color. Mm. Great answer, man. Great answer. Jay Reed asked, what does success look like? And I know I asked you that. You gave a very unique answer when I asked you that same question. Um, but for you, what does success look like in reference to the movement and, and what you've been doing? Success will always look like to me like like legacy. Um the legacy that each of us leaves behind is the only thing that we have. Um, Maya Angelou, you know, again, paraphrasing, she talked about the fact that, like, people forget what we did easily, you know, again, as time passed, but we will never forget how um, we made them feel. And so I think that's what success looks like, is that the fact that people can forget my name, hopefully they do, so I can lose some of these trolls. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, all this can happen and forget, you know, my physical presence, but not forgetting the fact that there was change here, that something amazing happened during this time, that there's something historic happened during this time. And that being a fire that can be ignited in someone else to continue the change and, and to, to carry that torch on for the next generation. Powerful, man. Our last three. Jessica B. asks, what was your knowledge of the University of Missouri prior to enrolling and why did you choose that place of higher education? My knowledge level was at like a negative 55 percent. Honestly, like um, I applied to um, some schools and again, my knowledge of schools and, and this is a different conversation on times of, uh, in terms of high school gatekeeping. But, you know, I only got access to schools that, you know, my counselors uh, pointed me and other black students to, you know, so that, you know, I, I really didn't have access to it. But what happened is that my mother did reach out to other Midwest schools because I was applying to schools that are pretty far away from Nebraska. And this, you know, just for geographical reasons. Um, was closest to my family. So that's why I chose Mizzou. And I really didn't have an understanding of, you know, what I was getting myself into. Um, but as I obviously, as I grew um, in my experience on campus, I, I learned more and more. And, you know, for me, it wasn't about running away just because someone called me the N-word on campus. Um, it really was about trying to fight back and, and trying to get to the core of the issue of why do people act like this? And how could we um, figure out the solution to fight for a better tomorrow? 
Gotcha, man. Great, great question, man. Great, quite great answer. Um, our last two, and I'm gonna ask one more. And I don't mind ask how much did the Paris attack affect the media attention on Mizzou University? Do you think you should, you want to address that? Uh, I, I, I mean, I can, I, I can address it. I mean, the thing is, a lot, a lot of the people who ask that question um, mm-hmm. are asking the question because there is a fake account that was created. Um, uh, on campus that like was posing as a Mizzou student and saying, you know, saying remarks like, oh, Mizzou's not getting enough attention. And, you know, a lot of people took to that the wrong way. And then again, sensationalizing what they saw in headlines, they only saw those headlines and then start to really demonize, you know, student activists on campus, not understanding that that was a fake account uh, created by someone on uh, one of the white people um, in, in the community um, to really, you know, deface the movement. So, Oh. So so that's where a lot of those questions honestly come from. But the fact is that, you know, MLK talks about it. Injustice any, you know, anywhere is injustice everywhere. So, um, you know, you, you won't find anybody on campus who's been involved in activism that wasn't deeply impacted by what happened in Paris because any loss of life is tragic. And so um, that, was, that was something that students on campus were, were mourning with as well. Okay, cool, cool. And no disrespect to the last tech, I want to kind of question your question. Your question, I just, um, I wanted to kind of preface it before I ask. Oh um, yeah, because no, it's no, a, yeah. No, no disrespect intended. You know, I, 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 yeah. I understand. Yeah, I'm glad you broke it broke it down like that because, um, but yeah. And our last two is uh, Lativia Alexander asks, what has the aftermath looked like for him? The students involved in the process in a university of all. Have you or any others that have been involved um, been along the planning process for affecting campus campus culture in general? Like, I mean, because I I guess he's alluding to there's been a I guess there's initiative or there's something involved in the campus culture. Have they sat down with you and now are you in the process of working with the campus on campus culture? And what does the impact uh, after your movement's been involved? Mm -hmm. Contrary to, to popular belief, we've been involved in policy work for years. Um, have we gotten the acknowledgement for that? No. Um, has the media chosen to write or, you know, highlight those stories? Absolutely not, because they don't want to show black students being intelligent. Um, but we've been involved in policy work for years um, through the hunger strike and through, you know, what concerns to one I-50. We now have a, a more national platform in which to work in those you know conversations, we, you know, with faculty council, with administrators. And so. Um, that's what we, you know, we're going to continue to do what we've always been doing, which is being in those meetings and being in those rooms. And now that we have the ears of campus leadership and with the recent change in certain leadership positions, we are now having people in those positions who are actually going to like put forth initiatives that help, um, our campus. And so we're going to continue that policy work. Um, does the new normal look different? Absolutely. Um, I literally walked into Panera today just to get, um, a hot tea. And I had like literally I walked in the door and then like everyone got really silent um, and then started like, whispering and like it didn't take until like one person approached me is like, are you that one guy? And it's just like, uh, yeah. And, you know, people were side eyeing me, you know, getting on their phones. There's probably, you know, texting up their group chats, you know, stuff about me. But it was just like, you know, there's a new normal for all of us who have been involved because, again, with this national attention. Um, you know, it definitely puts a different light on our lives. But again, we, we're always continuing to focus on the task at hand, which is liberation and freedom. And so, um, you know, our lives do look a little bit differently, but, you know, we're still students. You know, we're still activists. We're still, you know, operating in our normal everyday roles because, you know, there's still work to be done. Mm. 
Great answer. Great answer. And the last question to kind of close out the Q&A, like I said, thank you, HBCU Pride Nation, Travis Jackson, for helping facilitate this. Thank you for everybody engaging, like asking questions. It really meant a lot. I said 30 plus questions. Like this is this is and this is a matter of 10 minutes, 30 real questions, not just fluff ones. So thank you, everyone, for engaging. And our last one to bring us all home, I think it was a, a pretty deep question. Um, Victoria asked, what is the most effective way to emotionally heal from the scars of racism? Mm. Yeah, that's a deep one. I was like, goodness gracious, boy. Look at that. You know, there, there, there's about three things that come to mind immediately, but I think if we want to centralize it in a very brief manner. Um, I mean, you can take it much time because this is a deep one. I mean, whatever, whatever it feels that you need to say to kind of answer that question, I think it would be powerful for our whole our listeners in general. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say is that, you know, and I've said this many, many times in the media, I live by two principles, right? Um, one is dialogue and two is radical love, right? So dialogue would definitely be one of the, the, the entry points, right? Because if until we actually talk about our differences, like me talking to a white person, them talking to someone who's Muslim, talking to somebody else who, you know, may identify, you know, as transgender, you know, w- once we start to, uh, you know, have the dialogues amongst our different identities, I believe that's one of the stepping stones for change. Because, again, by being on Twitter, you know, looking at Fox News, you're not going to get a full perspective or even an accurate perspective of someone else's lived experience. You have to, like, go to where they were. And I always talk about that example of jesus christ jesus wasn't this pompous person um who just you know was like i could walk on water like forget the rest of y'all he literally went to where the sex workers were he went to where the mentally ill people were you know he went to everyone who wasn't like him to have these dialogues um and really do it i mean in genuine fashion which leads me to my second point which is radical love um without love um you're not going to accomplish anything and that's just my perspective is that you know radical and grasping it at the roots, understanding that, you know, if we're talking about race, you may slip up and say the N-word. And although I get offended, like, I really have to intentionally love you through that. Again, trying to understand where you're coming from and how can we heal from that situation and heal from these dialogues that we're having. And then I think the last um, main point in terms of, like, truly being effective, it's naming the issue. Um, one of the biggest things that we ha- issues that we had back in September is that we had the incident where our MSA president Peyton Head was called the N word. He did a Facebook post about it. It got thousands of shares. It made it to I think the Washington or Huffington Post. It got national attention, but our administrators didn't acknowledge it for almost six days. Mm. Even after like almost six days later, when they made a, a very short, insincere email about it. They never even acknowledged what the issue was, understanding that calling someone the N-word is a racialized incident. And so even the fact that, you know, two weeks after that, we were still fighting for them to acknowledge racism. And, you know, again, two and a half weeks later, they finally did. It's like once you actually acknowledge what you're fighting, like, you know how to fight it. Again, I can be in this dark room with the door closed. And if I don't know what's in front of me, I'm going to miss everything that I'm trying to hit. But once I turn on the lights, I know exactly where my target is. And I know what I need to do to accomplish my goals. And so I think very simply, like the way we heal is understanding that we have an issue, not trying to sweep it under the rug, which oftentimes happens. Oh, man. Like I said, thank you for taking the time to answer those questions and really um, add your own. Uh, under, uh, 
Thank you. Look, look, I love how pod, like podcast stuff. I can edit all this stuff out. <laughs> Thank you for the time taking to answer those questions, man. And to wrap it all up, we're going into our rapid change culture change round, where I ask you five questions and you take around ten to twenty seconds um, to answer them, and then we wrap it all up, man. You ready? Um, as ready as I'm gonna be. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Always love people um, and have compassion for the world. Mm. What is one of your personal habits that you can attribute to your success thus far? Reading. Reading every second that I can. And not like reading for class, but reading for leisure. Mm. Third question, and you can kind of elaborate on the 10 second. I usually ask, what is your favorite book and why? But I really want you to give us um, our non-informed audience and our informed three books that three to five books that we could read to kind of educate ourselves on the conscious movement, the black movement that um, we're, we're probably not hip to. So please, please educate us. Okay. So um, I think a really great book to start off with um, would be um, a book by Angela Davis called um, Our Prison Systems Obsolete. Um, she takes a really in-depth viewpoint on the prison industrial complex. She talks, on, she talks about the school to prison pipeline, and she also talks about the factors of why do we have the policing system that we do. So when you talk about the, the national environment that we have right now on the conversation around police brutality and prison systems and mass incarceration, I think that's a really great, very short read. Um, uh, and it took me about a couple hours to read that um, to, to really give you a, a pretty in-depth context for being such a short book about not only the prison industrial contracts, but also school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration as well. So um, our prison systems, absolute, absolute, excuse me, by Angela Davis. Um, great book uh, in terms of foundational, like where we are right now. Um, the next book will be um, Brainwashed by Tom Burrell. When we talk about the one, the myth of black inferior, inferiority that, you know, stuff like black people are just inherently stupid and savage. Um, it really breaks down where that comes from, as well as breaking down the system of like, why do black men uh, approach and interact with black women the way we do? Why do we have the relations that we do with white people that we do? Why is it the fact that we operate in the economic system that we do currently? And why is it that black people specifically continue to be disadvantaged in certain ways um, and even conversation on, on how, you know, welfare looks one way to white people. Um, and then when you talk about welfare with black people, it looks a totally different way, or at least that's the way it's portrayed in the media. Um, so it's a really foundational book if you want to challenge a lot of the ways that you think in terms of like, how do we get here? Because even talking about black on black crime, um, it really breaks down how black on black crime is not a thing. It's not. Black on black crime is a rhetoric. Um, given by mm. white supremacy, you know, standards to try and infiltrate our community and get us to break down each other. Um, do black people kill other black people? Absolutely. But this book really um, breaks down how that myth happens because intra-racial crime is 85 to 90 percent. So white people kill white people at a 90 percent rate. It's just the same way that Latino to Latino, black and black, black. So again, I'm, I'm rambling on that, but that is a great foundational book. Um, Brainwashed by Tom Burrell. Um, if you really want to get some foundational um, basis for just the, the the way that, you know, black people have been socialized and how that's continued to have impacts for us um, even to this day. And then the last book. Um, ah, man, there's too many good books to, to choose from. I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's really not fair. It's really not. Fair. <laughs> but um, I guess I would say is that um, another really great book um, is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. 
Oh, I read that. I did get. Yes, I got my little. Uh, uh, I got a slice of uh, my activist card. I read that book. I love that book. Yeah. So if you want to talk about building off of like foundational, you know, reading W. E. Du Bois and really reading M. O. K. Like this is a great like piece in terms of like really elevating and projecting you forward in terms of activism because when you talk about why um, this system of white supremacy is set up the way it is, we need to fight back against the system um i i got so, there's so many lessons to be to gain from this book um i'm, I'm not going to do it justice by trying to explain it but it's it's truly um not only like um telling us how to fight back but the biggest piece that i really gained from it is this idea of black healing and understand that like we really do have to claim our past and understand where we came from um going back to you know you know our roots in africa um to really understand and start healing as we go forward um so post-traumatic slave syndrome um from dr joy degru um is a is another great one gosh man and at the um if you have if- if you have time, um, we're not going to get into this show, but you can feel free to email me any other books and I'll make sure I put in the show notes and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I have it on the website. So for those that just want as much knowledge on this, this situation as possible, please feel free to email me what book so I can I can have for the audience. Oh, absolutely. Because um, I mean, because yeah. the list goes on, cause, you know, you have the whole series of black authors that I would suggest because there's even people who do fictional work. Like, um, uh, you know, obviously like James Baldwin, we have the Tony Morrisons, but then we have people who aren't black who are doing this work um, with the, the Paulo Freira, Paulo Cholo, um, so many, so many people. So, nah, I appreciate you dropping them now, dropping those those books and those tools. And I know the audience will, too. Um, our fourth question, what inspires you the most and keeps you motivated? Oh, hands down, the community. Um when you look at how the community here mobilized around recent events with the, the hunger strike and, and um, everything that happened on campus, um, I, you know, how the community mobilized in Ferguson, I got to see that firsthand, how the community back home in Nebraska has mobilized and with our issues with gun violence. Um, wow. You know, I, I, it always leaves me speechless. So um, the community will always probably be the, the inspirational factor because like the heart of people, um, when they come together and they're really passionate about, you know, getting change to happen um, in their respective areas, whether that's, you know, within the, you know, the criminal justice system, the education system, you know, just, you know, getting more black businesses, whatever the case is. Um, I think it's so powerful to, to witness that. So I think the community is probably, you know, beyond, you know, God, you know, who, who is, who is, you know, my creator and, you know, the sole source of everything I have um, on a, on a more earthly foundational level, it truly has to be um, the, the community. Great, man. Our last question in the, for that round is if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? I probably honestly wouldn't be the president of the United States. Just understand. <laughs> I mean, nothing against, you know, the, the, the presidency, you know, and Obama, and I, but you know, it's just not a, a place where I would be close enough to the community to affect change. Um, because what I would need to happen um, if I did have like this all, you know, purpose authority would to, you know, really, you know, start evaluations of, you know, police and how police are trained. Um, when we talk about the education system um, and, and how we can take money away from, you know, funding war and actually fund um, the, the, the feeding of poor people in our nation, um, you know, providing homes for veterans who have got on and fight, gone out and fought for this nation and have come back to nothing. Um, so, you know, there, there's things that I want to do, but I think I, I could achieve them better um, from a, a, a source of community involvement than I could from, you know, the bureaucracy of the, of the presidency. 
Mm, great, man. Great. Thanks for wrapping up that round. And we always end with this last question before I let you go. Um, and it's, 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 it's a, I'm not going to say it's a doozy. I, I'm listening to too much Entrepreneur on Fire. It's a doozy. Nah. If you, have, if you have one wish, right? If you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African-American culture, what would it be and why? This is a deep one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's another deep one, right? It, it, it goes through so many different directions, right? Um, yeah. I think the first thing that comes to mind is, honestly, I wouldn't change anything about black culture. I love black culture um, immensely and everything that we have to offer. Um, it's unfortunate that it gets, you know, appropriated by white culture and white media all too often. So maybe, you know, one answer is simply wanting rep- uh, proper recognition and acknowledgement and space um, for um black culture to thrive um but otherwise i, I really you know I, I love us for who we are in terms of black culture so i don't i don't know if there's anything i particularly change other than change the you know the access the opportunities that we have as black people to really um truly be successful in this in this lifetime man like i'm gonna be honest like your answer really maybe question how i phrase this freaking question because <laughs> i ask it and the question is kind of phrased in a context like there's something wrong with our culture or it has to be viewed from a different lens so i'm gonna, I'm gonna go back i like how deep it is but i want to i might have to rechange how i kind of uh put that question because i like you i like how you, you thought about it because it makes it seem like our culture is at a deficit or something like that mm-hmm. when honestly if our culture was publicized and 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 editorialized and 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 put out on a on a pedestal or viewable to all the whole spectrum of our culture it would be so dynamic so powerful so life-changing that people everybody want to be in this culture because there's some crazy stuff going on so i'm glad that you attacked it that way man so before i let you go um i know this 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 interview was specifically about yourself but i know there is a lot of people involved in the movement that have supported it that are still on the ground tension so is there anybody or any people any groups or organizations you want to shout out on um, on the show um uh, right now that have really played a, a huge part outside of like the uh, that played a huge part in in what you have what you have done uh yeah, so uh, you know, first off, you know, shout out to uh, shout out to my mother, uh, who who's been sending out you know care packages and you know really taking care of you know everybody since day one. Um, definitely shout out to Concerns Two One Nine Five Zero, the group and the organization that's really done a lot of um, the recent activism on campus. Um, definitely shout out to Alas, which is the the uh, Association of Latino Students on Campus um, that has really done a lot of pivotal work. Um, shout out to Four Directions. Um, which is the um, uh, Indigenous Peoples Organization on campus. Uh, what else? Uh, shout out to Worley Street um, Roundtable, um, which has done a lot of the community engagement and in, in our uh, low-income communities in community uh, in Columbia. Uh, darn it! I hate listening to people because I'm. A- I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, you gotta have that catch-all at the end, and so everybody gonna be like, "Oh man, he ain't shout me out, bro. Like, what's good?" And, uh, who else? Who else? Uh, Mu for Mike Brown. Obviously, that's where a lot of our roots in terms of current activism has come from, from Post Ferguson. Ah um, oh, man, who else? Uh, so many people. Uh, you know, general just the social justice community, the the groups that we have coming out of the Gaines Oldman Black Culture Center, um, the groups we come out of the Multicultural Center on campus. There, there's so many people who are involved in this beyond just black students um i'm forgetting people and uh you know charge it to my head not my heart um but there, there are countless individuals who uh, and groups who have been ha- helping out on campus specifically so um shout out to everyone involved and and definitely um 
the the fight continues because of them. I got you, man. So that wraps up the interview, man. Like I said, I will say from from my heart, from the audience heart, man, this is the one of the best, um, but definitely the most powerful interview that I have done thus far because it's specifically on the current issues and what's going on. So I sincerely appreciate you taking your time. I know you're working on eight different tests. <laughs> you have a lot of I know you I know you're working on doing a lot right now. So thank you for giving us an hour of your time, dropping this now, dropping this bomb. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we can take this conversation not just from your lens, not from my lens, but to our own discussion with our friends and, and our peer groups to start having these open conversations and start building and learning and growing together. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, man, giving your knowledge and really adding value, brother. I appreciate you having me. No problem, man. And, and, and before we end, how can people get in contact with you? I don't, not an email address. I guess your best form of contact probably is Twitter, right? Because you on Twitter all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is my study break thing. Uh, yeah, but like, find me on Twitter, um, underscore Jonathan Butler. Um, and then, you know, if you really want to connect, you know, um, you can DM me and we can, you know, get connected that way and, and you know, follow up via email. Uh, but yeah, right now, you know, um, that, that's probably the best way. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best way. Like I'm telling you, getting in contact with him is like getting in contact with Malcolm X, which I appreciate because there's a lot of because there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that being that you put yourself in that spotlight, especially for what you put yourself in the spotlight for that. You really got to be careful with your information. Like you, you can't. So this is like the, I'm, that's why I got. I'm glad I got an interview because I mean, I, yeah, yeah, man. So like I said, I appreciate you, 100, my brother. Let me know if any way that I could support, any way that I can do in my lane to support. Continue doing what you do. You're, you're, you're going to be in my prayers, man. Um, and stay strong, brother. Stay strong. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, man. Man, we're out, and I'll send you. Uh, I'll send you a follow up email because uh, I'm. I'm gonna edit it. I gotta go to church right now. So we are evening service, so I'm gonna edit. I'm gonna get this thing out pretty quick, man. So I'll send you send you the link and and when it's going out, man. And I appreciate you, brother. All right. All right. All right, man. All right, peace. Peace. I will say that was one of my longest episode. Probably will be the longest episode ever of the Minority Trouble as a podcast, but. I really didn't want to shortchange Jonathan. I didn't want to shortchange the issue. So I asked as many questions as I could and really just wanted him to elaborate on a lot of those answers. So I I mean, thank him for letting us have that time. And thank y'all that listened through to the end for listening. And hopefully we can kind of continue the discussion, not primarily with me, myself, or with John, but primarily within your friend group, within your your social circles and surroundings, and ask yourself these questions, educating yourself so you can add value the way only you can add value. So thank y'all again for tuning into the Minority Trail as a podcast. I mean, we've been an hour and 10 minutes strong in here, but we held it down. Y'all held it down. So before I, before I end, make sure for all new episodes, you can, you can find us on iTunes at TheMinorityTrailblazerPodcast.com. Please give us that five-star rating and a review. You can also find us on SoundCloud at The Minority Trailblazer Podcast. And you can find us online at www.GreggyHill.com backslash MT Podcast. So thank y'all for tuning in. And before I end, before I end, like I always do, I need to do one thing, one thing, one thing only. Change the culture. Good night, America.